Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes from Acts 1, 15 to 17 and 21 to 26. This is uh, after the death of Judas, they are replacing Judas with another apostle. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which through the Holy Spirit, through David, foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, your second scripture reading comes from Galatians. This is a letter that was written to the church, churches in Galatia that this man Paul had set up. We're going to be talking a lot about him today. And Paul writes, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. And what's a Gentile again? Just so we're all clear. Non-Jew. Remember that. Very important. Non-Jew. I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. And who's Cephas again, by the way? That's Peter. And stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, The one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing on with our sermon series, Church and State, the Rise of Early Christianity. In what we've been talking about is, we've been talking about how this particular series, it picks up where we left off two years ago with our Mark series, and we're talking about the history of the early church as it is told to us through the documents in the New Testament. 
And so this series is broken into four parts. As you can see up there, we are on part one, which goes from 30 to 70 AD, which deals with the formation of the early church. So last week, we asked a very simple, yet somewhat elusive question, which is, who was in charge of the early church? Who was running the show after Jesus died and was resurrected? And although it's not entirely clear who was truly in charge, we came away saying that more than likely it was James, Jesus' brother. And this is kind of odd because James, Jesus' brother, he doesn't appear anywhere in the gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's not in there in Jesus' ministry. The only time he comes up is when him and the rest of Jesus' family are trying to stop Jesus because they think he's crazy. So how does James go from being the nobody in Jesus' movement to the guy who runs the show? And honestly, what did I tell you? We don't know. It just kind of happens. And so our best guess is that he dismissed his brother early on as a lunatic, and then he has this resurrection experience of Jesus, and he takes over Jesus' movement. Now, the most important thing I told you last week, most important thing I told you, is that James and the rest of the disciples, they don't go off and form a brand new religion. It's not like day one, it's Christianity, everybody. Guess what? You can come, brand new religion, open for business. It wasn't like that, was it? No, yeah, maybe, yeah. No. Nope. Come on. No, thank you. Ah, there we go. <laughs> That's why he gets paid back there. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. Basically, what happens is the disciples, James, the rest of them, they go back to their villages, and they start preaching in these villages and in their synagogues. Now, what's important for you to know is that some people were receptive to this message, but most people were not. Most people said, eh, you know, it sounds nice, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But for those who were receptive, they were very avid followers. And what's interesting is that other groups of Jews took notice of this. And they kind of became upset about Jesus' movement. They were not so happy about it. Now, we don't entirely know what it was about Jesus' movement that made them feel as though Jesus' movement was leading these good Jews astray from the true faith. Maybe it was Jesus' teachings. Or maybe it was the fact that Jesus had been convicted of treason and crucified for it. I know we don't often think about that, but that's not a good thing, right? I mean, that's not something, if your friend got convicted of treason and was executed for it, would you say, hey, to your, to your children or to your friends, we should go be a part of that guy's thing. Like, you wouldn't do that, right? That wouldn't be positive. Or maybe it was the fact that some of Jesus' disciples were talking about Jesus as though he were divine. The fact is, we don't know. But whatever it was that bothered them, they not only were fighting against the church with words, they were fighting against it with actions and violence. What we know is that there were some people who were really trying to silence James and the rest of the disciples to the degree that they were willing to arrest them, they were willing to imprison them, they were willing to beat them, to flog them, and Christian tradition tells us that some people were even killed. This is hard for us to verify, because the truth is the first time we know of anybody being killed for being part of Jesus' movement is 64 AD. So for the first 20, 30 years, because if we say Jesus was crucified in 30, we don't know. We're not entirely sure. So, 
The only real record we have on this comes from this guy, Paul. He's the only person who really talks about this. Now, Paul, of course, is what we read this morning. And I want to give you a little bit of background on Paul before we dive into this little excerpt that we read from his letter to the church in Galatia. Because, arguably, this guy is the most important person next to Jesus in the early church. So who is Paul? Where did he come from? And how did he get connected with Jesus' movement? So, best we can tell, and these are estimates, Paul was born sometime around 5 A.D., somewhere in there. And he comes from an area called Tarsus, a city called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is located in modern Turkey. And if you're wondering, okay, well, where's Tarsus in comparison with where Jesus grew up? You're talking about a distance of about 600 miles. That's how far away he is from the Holy Land. But even though he grew up away from the Holy Land, he still grew up in a family that was devoutly Jewish. Paul identifies as a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is a sect of Judaism. And I've explained to you before that a sect is kind of like a denomination in Christianity. What's our denomination? What are we called? Presbyterian. Presbyterian. So there's also Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Baptists, Catholics. We're the best, but <laughs> these other ones exist out there, right? And they exist because they think about the Bible differently than we do. So Judaism, in Judaism you have the Pharisees, and they are one version of Judaism that existed in the first century. And what set them apart was the way that they interpreted the laws in the Old Testament. First five books of the Bible, what are they called? Do you remember? Torah. Torah. And do you know how many laws are in those first five books of the Bible? 613. There you go. Yeah, everybody knew that, right? Do you want to know how you can remember that? What is 6 plus 1 plus 3? 10. Ten. 10, which is kind of like the 10 commandments. commandments. Thank you, yes. And that is not, that is not unintentional, by the way. They made it so that 613 would be the number of the 10 because they wanted to go back to the 10 commandments. So what made the Pharisees unique was the way they dealt with these laws. These laws deal with everything from what you're supposed to eat and drink to what you're supposed to wear to how you treat illnesses and disease. And they were very, very intent upon making sure they didn't break any of these laws. And so Paul, as a Pharisee, he was very concerned that he was going to do what God wanted him to do. He talks about this in the letter that we read this morning. This is what he says. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my, age of the, many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Paul doesn't write super well. I'm just going to put that out there. Like, his stuff does not translate into English particularly well. So everything you read from him, it's very clunky in terms of the grammar. So just realize it's not real easy to read. But the whole point that he's trying to make here is what? I was obsessed. Literally, that's what he's saying. I was obsessive about making sure that I was following all the laws. He was going to make sure he wasn't going to break any of them. Now here's something that you really have to hear because this is so important for what we're talking about today. From the Pharisaic point of view, the Pharisees believed that you could follow all of the laws of the Old Testament perfectly. That that was possible to do. If you gave enough time to memorizing and doing all these things, you could live it out. And people did it all the time because it was just things that you had to learn how to do. And here, we may have stumbled upon 
the reason why Paul disliked Christianity so much. You see, we don't know how Paul first came into contact with Jesus' movement, but what we do know is that Paul disagreed with it, and not only that, he wanted to wipe it out completely. This is what he says in the letter, this excerpt. He says, I was violently persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. Now why? Why? We don't actually know. But here's my guess. One thing we do know is that Jesus had a very different understanding of sin than the average Jewish person. So, the average Jew, if you were going to be convicted of doing something, of breaking one of these laws, you actually had to do it. So if you're going to be convicted of murder, you actually had to go out and kill somebody. That was kind of part of the deal, right? If you were going to be convicted of committing adultery, you had to go out and have a sexual relationship with somebody who was not your spouse. But Jesus, he has a very different point of view on this. He believed that thinking that sin was the same thing as doing the sin. Now think about that. That's, that's tough, right? Now why does he come to this conclusion? He comes to this conclusion because Jesus believes that it's the thought that leads to the action. Right? If you're going to go out and commit adultery, you have to think about it beforehand in order to commit the act. It's basically taking the thought into the world. So from his vantage point, a sin is is, can begin with a thought, and therefore thoughts can be sinful. Now, if you're a Pharisee and you've built your whole life around the idea that you can live out the law perfectly, does this mess things up for you a little bit? Yeah, it absolutely does. Because now, all of a sudden, when you bring thoughts into the equation, you can't live it out perfectly. There's a flaw in your way of thinking. So you can imagine how for somebody like Paul, this would have been infuriating, wouldn't it? Because you've just dedicated your entire life to living out all these laws perfectly, and you think it can be done, and then this guy, Jesus, whoever he is, comes along and says, you can't do it. Not only would, you, would it undermine everything you've worked for in your entire life, but it would also threaten to lead other people astray. I mean, because it's a slippery slope, right? If you can't follow all the rules perfectly, then what's the point of following them in the first place? The rules lose all of their value. So Paul, he decides to fight back. He's not going to stand for this. So he goes after them. And here, we come across one theory as to how he may have found out about Christianity. There's one small reference in the letter to the Romans, where he says that there was a relative of his who actually became Christian before he did. So here's one theory. He goes and visits this relative, and they say, hey, I became part of this whole Jesus movement thing. And he's like, well, what's that about? And when he finds out, he says, I don't like that very much. And so he's scared for his relative that they will be separated from God. And as a result, he goes out and he starts trying to go after the disciples, to shut them down. And this is why he goes after them with violence and arresting them and all these things. But then something happens. Something unexpected. Paul has a vision of the resurrected Jesus. Now, we don't know what that entailed or what it looked like, but what we do know for sure is that it totally changed his life. It totally switched things around. Whereas before, previously, Paul was fighting against the church, now he becomes part of the movement. Whereas previously, he wanted to wipe it out, now he is one of Christianity's most ardent supporters, and he believes that he has been given a mission, 
And his mission is to go out and to tell Jesus' message to the Gentiles who are what? Non-Jews. We're going to keep coming back to this. You will get it eventually. Non-Jews, yes. He goes out and does that. But here's the problem. And it's a problem that he will face again and again as a promoter of Jesus' message. Paul is an outsider. He was not part of Jesus' original movement. He was not one of the original disciples. And yet, he wants to claim that he has the same authority as Jesus' original disciples. In case you were wondering, the yellow guy in this, that's Paul, okay? And those guys holding hands because they like each other, those are the disciples. So, Galatians, he writes this letter, and he's talking about how he became part of Jesus' movement. And you want to know why he's going through all this painstaking effort to tell you about it? Because he's heard through the grapevine that some of those guys, the guys in the circle, Jesus' original disciples, they're questioning his authority. They're saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. They're saying that he's not a true apostle. So, Paul, he walks them through step by step. This is how I came into possession of my version of the gospel. This is what he says. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. Basically, what is he saying? I'm not making this up, okay? For I did not receive it from a human source. Other people didn't tell me about it. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, even though Jesus is no longer here, where did I receive my gospel? I got it from the horse's mouth. I got it directly from Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Oh, no, no, no. That's not the end of it. He says, after that, he went off into Arabia for three years. For three years, he leaves and goes off. We don't know what he was doing for those three years. He just leaves. And then he says, then, and only then, did I go to Jerusalem. And that's when I saw Cephas, or Peter, right? And James, Jesus' brother. But, just so you know, I was only there for 15 days. And those two guys, they didn't influence or manipulate my message in any way, shape, or form. Now, why is Paul so concerned about this? Why is he going through all of this effort? Because it all comes down to the definition of an apostle. An apostle. If I told you, if I, if I use that word apostle, do you know what that word means? It just means one who was sent out. But in that time, what it meant is that you were with Jesus. You saw him. You watched him do all of his things, and you saw him speak, and you heard him speak. That's what it means to be an apostle. That's why we read Acts. So in Acts, remember I told you what's happening? They're getting the new person to replace Judas, right? And in that, they say, okay, who do we want? Well, we need somebody who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So you needed to be with him, right? Beginning from the baptism of John, meaning when he was baptized by John in the Jordan, right? Until the day when he was taken up from us, the ascension or the resurrection. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. In other words, if you want to be an apostle, you have to have been there from the very beginning. And of course, Paul... Was he there from the very beginning? Nope. He wasn't. He wasn't there from the time of Jesus' baptism. And what you have to realize 
is that this is an issue that will stay with Paul for the rest of his time in trying to promote the church, literally to the day he dies. That little group of disciples, the guys holding hands, they thought of him as a black sheep. They were kind of like, you know what, Paul? We're going to believe you when you say you had an experience of the resurrected Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you're one of us. You have to realize that Paul was very different from Jesus' original disciples. Paul was an educated man. Not only did he know Judaism super well, but he was also educated in Greek philosophy. We know this because he uses Stoic philosophy in his letters. So this guy's educated. Whereas Jesus' original disciples, these are poor peasants with almost no education. It's understandable why they would be skeptical of this outsider who's come in and said, hey, I'm going to help you guys out. They were very skeptical of him. And the truth is they never accepted him as one of their own. And as I will show you in future sermons, they actually went behind his back and tried to undercut him whenever they could. But here's the kicker. The thing that's so fascinating about this is that if it wasn't for Paul, we would not be sitting here in this room today. If Christianity had been left in the hands of those original apostles, those guys who were with Jesus from his baptism all the way through his resurrection, Christianity as a religion, it would have failed completely. Wouldn't have made it. Now we're going to talk about, over the next couple of sermons, what Paul did to make it so that Christianity would not fail. But for now, suffice it to say, he had a very different perspective and a very different understanding of Jesus' message than Jesus' original disciples. And perhaps this is why I have so closely identified with Paul throughout my ministry. How many of you all grew up in the church? Went to church your whole lives? Okay, a lot of you in here. I was like you. I grew up going to church, but I didn't know what any of it meant. Like, my mom was like, you're going to go to church on Sunday. I was like, okay, whatever you say. And I would be there. But I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand that it revolved around Jesus. I didn't know any of that stuff. I only came to it much later in my life when I started to really look at it and take it seriously. And by that point, I had had so much training and education in religion that I had a very different perspective on how to interpret and look at the Bible. Now, I know for many of you who grew up in the traditional church, my interpretations of the Bible can be a source of frustration. I think we could say that to put it lightly. And the fact is, I tend to question and doubt many of the things that traditional Christians take for granted. If I was in a more evangelical, conservative congregation, you all would have put me out the door a long time ago. I can tell you that much. You all would have said, we're going to say goodbye to that heretic just for preaching and bringing up some of the ideas that I've talked about. And of course, I'm alluding to, most specifically, my football sermon, because that's the one that you don't mess with. You don't mess with the sacred cow, which, by the way, there's a Bears game today, from what I understand. And so you don't mess with football, right? No? You all weren't here for that one? Yeah? <laughs> some of you were, and you were like, yeah, I wish I wasn't. <laughs> now, here's the thing. When I bring up difficult subjects... I don't do so to make you all angry. I do them because I know that many of you in here have the same doubts and questions that I have. And by voicing them out loud, it gives you permission 
to voice them out loud as well, which may not seem like it's that big of a deal, but trust me, it actually makes a huge difference. You all are probably aware that the traditional church is rapidly dying. Do you know that? Our denomination, the Presbyterian denomination, by the most generous of estimates, will cease to exist in 25 years. Now, one of the reasons why our denomination and other denominations like ours are literally nosediving right now is because decades ago, when we held a monopoly on the culture of the United States, all of our denominations came out and said, you will believe what we say, hook, line, and sinker, or you can go off and you don't have to be part of us. We don't need you. And that was the way it was for many decades. You believe what we believe, you say what we say. And now, here we are in 2017, and the vast majority of our culture in the United States has turned their back on the church. And you all know this to be true. When you go out and you meet somebody who's outside of the church, I guarantee you one of the first things you talk about with this new stranger is not the fact that you go to church here at First Pres. Because you want to feel this person out, don't you? You want to make sure they're not going to judge you for going to church. And why would they judge you for going to church? Because the church in our culture has come to represent uneducated, backwards, and closed-minded thinking. People in the United States, when they go to church, at least from the way it's perceived, you don't go to church to seek out God anymore. You go to church to be told what to think about God. What I'm going to be showing you over the next several weeks is that the position we are in right now, this nosedive that I'm talking about, was the exact same position that the early church was in. They were in a nosedive as well, and they weren't going to make it. And you want to know how they got out of it? An outsider came in and changed their way of thinking about things, and that's how they got out of it. And that's where you guys come into play. You see, I've been listening to you all talk. You've been coming to me, we've been having conversations, and what I've noticed is that the composition of this congregation is trending more and more towards people who question and people who doubt. And as I have these conversations with you all, both new and old members, it's not just new people coming in, I'm talking about a lot of people who are older members here, the more I have these conversations, the more I realize just how outside the box you guys actually are thinking. And that's why I believe that we have a shot at surviving, or at least surviving longer than the average church is going to. So when Paul became part of the Christian movement, he was rejected by Jesus' inner circle because the way he thought was so incredibly different from them. He was pushed out. And yet, what did I tell you? We are here today because of Paul. And so I pose the question to you. Should we not strive to be more like Paul? Should we as a church community not strive to identify as outsiders? Should we as a church community not strive to question the status quo? Should we as a church community not strive to think outside the box? So if this is traditional Christianity, this is the box that most people grew up with. So in this box, 
And by the way, do you all know what this box is? I think this is great. This is literally the first day I ever preached here. This was given to me by the PNC. And this is their signatures when they brought me here. So if this is the box of traditional Christianity, inside of this, we have things like the Bible, right? Very important. We have the hymnal, even more important to some people, depending on who you are. <laughs> Particularly the people behind me. You have communion, you have baptism, you have these things that are very important, that have been in this box for a long time. And so, we look at this box and we say, this box has gotten us this far. Here we are, 2017. We've made it this far because of these traditions. But the traditions as they are now are not going to keep us going forward in the same way. We still need them. But we need to think beyond them. Because without them, without these here, we don't have a foundation. But if we stick with these only, we're going to face the same fate as everyone else. And I know that for some of you in here, that is a very scary prospect. But the truth is, if we don't try to be different, if we don't try to be innovative, then we are going to end up in the exact same situation and face the exact same fate as every other church that's out there. But we have a unique opportunity. We have the resources, we have the people, we have the intellect, and most importantly, we have the heart. So many people in here, you have a heart of gold, so many, and you believe so strongly. And so I know that we have the potential. The question is, are we just going to keep doing all the things that we've always done, or are we going to take a risk? And are we going to do things differently and be innovative and be known for doing those things like that? Are we going to be like Paul and wrestle the Christian faith away from the traditions that are strangling it and breathe fresh life into this ancient religion that deserves to be the center of our lives? Are we going to do that together? And I think that if you're hearing this sermon today and you're saying, yes, I want to be a part of that, then I hope that you'll stand with me and you'll say together as one voice, I am an outsider. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.